A loaded gun. A speeding car. An open bottle of vodka. And road rage. Ear-catching ads. Huge sums of money and a fight over a supermajority in the state house. This is the Politics Podcast from WUNC. I'm Jeff Tabiri. And I'm Dave DeWitt. Last week on the podcast, we discussed battleground NC Senate districts. And today, let's turn our attention toward the North Carolina House. And Jeff, give us a sense of just in general, how are the North Carolina House and North Carolina Senate different just as entities? We know at the federal level, the House is kind of seen as the Wild West, while the Senate is a little more august and tempered in theory. Is that true at the state level? No doubt. No doubt at all. And I'm going to test an analogy out on you. Feel free to just chop it down if it doesn't make sense. I have tested this analogy out on uh, sitting and former state lawmakers before, and I have never received considerable pushback. So uh, it's a boat analogy. The Senate is a catamaran. Think old wood, fine wine, decent cheeses, quiet hours at a reasonable time. It is generally a predictable vessel. Mm -hmm. The House is a cruise ship. Multiple decks, a little bit of everything and anything, if you know where to look. It is rarely, if ever, quiet. And sometimes it is unclear if this is, in fact, a rudderless vessel. So that's the Senate versus the House. Uh, The House is far more entertaining. (laughs) The Senate is uh, far more agreeable if you're trying to be in bed before midnight. So, yes, It's just it's constant drama in the House. All right. And so that leads to my second question is, is how have the rough seas of redistricting Mm. changed the landscape for midterms, particularly is it the cruise ship house? So I'm going to try to roll with the analogy here. It might be a little more complicated. But as you think about the waters that a boat would uh, exist in. North Carolina as a whole grew a million people roughly from 2010 to 2020. But. Of the 100 counties in our state, about half of them lost population during that time. Now, I'm going to cite both U.S. Census here and also Carolina Demography, which has done some uh, analysis of this over the last year or so. And half the counties lost population. Then you have these really tremendous gains in Mecklenburg, almost 200,000 people, Wake, 228,000 people. And if you think about a million people added to our state, that right there is like 42, 43% of them in just two counties, Wake and Mecklenburg. Durham has added 60,000 people in the last 10 years or so. Guilford, 52. Fifth on this list is uh, Cabarrus County, which is notable, just next to, to Mecklenburg, certainly the not an urban county. But the waters have shrunk uh, as we think about the large red swaths in the state. And the urban areas are getting bigger. As we think about the districts this week on the podcast, House districts, each district needs to be about 87,500 constituents. So you can think of it, I don't know, either way, a river widening, a, a lake drying up a little bit. But these districts are expanding from these blue centers. And if you're thinking of large red swaths of the state, no longer in that red swath might there be half a million people. There might be, you know, 460,000. So the, the geography of the district has to get a little bit wider in order to encompass enough people for there to be districts or a certain number of districts. 
Let me reset a little bit and acknowledge Cumberland, which I think is notable as we talk about redistricting. Because Cumberland really hasn't grown all that much, like 5%, somewhere between 15 and 20,000 people. But it has grown. And because it's an urban area, it has gotten bluer. And one of the Republicans who has ostensibly been left stranded is this Republican named John Zoka. He's been in the North Carolina House for a number of terms from Cumberland County, one of the most powerful members of the chamber. But because of how Cumberland has shifted electorally and the districts, John Zoka is not even running for re-election here. So he is a, an experienced person with a lot of institutional knowledge who is not on the ballot this fall. I don't know if that answers your question, but that was a shot. So give us the landscape in terms of numbers. We're, we're talking about super majorities here, what Republicans need to get. And we described what a super majority is. And if you're this far into this podcast and, and you're not yet sure of what that means, um, you, you're probably listening to the wrong podcast. So probably what it means in the House is Republicans need to increase their majority from 69 to 72 and, and, and parse this out in three categories for us, open seats, uh, meaning there's no incumbent at all, Republican incumbents who are in tight contests and maybe playing a little bit of defense, and Democratic incumbents who are fighting for re-election. Yeah, and a couple of caveats off, off the top. One, because of redistricting, there are just some new seats. Um, we're not really going to talk about those today. We're not going to talk about all the seats. There are 120 seats in the North Carolina House. All of them are up this year. All of them are up every two years. Republicans presently hold 69, as you mentioned. Effectively, they need to net three to get this supermajority and tell the, the, the governor to go climb into a dark hole for the next two years. Let's start with Democrats playing defense. So these are incumbents in the North Carolina House who are battling right now, if not in trouble. And the most notable one is the minority leader, Robert Reeves of Chatham County. I won't even call him necessarily a rising star in the Democratic Party. He's one of the few notable figures in Democratic politics in North Carolina. Because of redistricting, this race is tighter, is more competitive. The irony here is this is a toss-up district. These are the kind of districts that Democrats want to see, by and large, in more areas of the state. So Robert Reeves is up against a former Chatham County commissioner named Walter Petty. Truly a toss-up. Lots of money here. Pickup opportunity for the Republicans. I am not going to wade into the muck that has been the the back and forth mailers in this race, but uh, it has gotten ugly. It has gotten taxing. That's a, a direct word um, that Representative Reeves shared with me this week. Uh, so that is certainly one to watch. We're going to move to Nash County, where James Galliard, a one-term incumbent, is being challenged by Alan Chesser, a Republican. And I would be willing to bet a lot of listeners of the podcast are going Nash County. Where is that again? About an hour northeast of Raleigh, uh, northeast of Wake County. And what I want to highlight here, no disrespect to Galliard or Chesser, uh, is a note on Nash County. It is the only county in the state that is a boomerang county. So 2012, 2016, 2020, it's the only county in the state that went Obama, Trump, you know what's coming, Biden, the only one in the whole state. So the the margins are narrow uh, and it, it, it's going to be uh, probably close there. Also worth noting, there is a libertarian here in this district. His name is Nick Taylor. He ran two years ago. And as a data point, when he ran two years ago, he received 1,600 votes. So in a tight race, 1,600 votes is not nothing. To the point of tight 
outcomes, just to remind people, House districts are smaller than Senate districts, and that lends itself potentially to tighter margins. So four years ago, Rachel Hunt, the daughter of former Governor Jim Hunt, won a seat in Mecklenburg County. She ousted a Republican incumbent, and she won by less than 70 votes. I don't know if we're going to have any that tight, um, but we're going to have some really tight ones. Which brings me to uh, our next uh, notable race in Alamance. Ricky Hurtado, a first-term Democrat, uh, is up against Stephen Ross, a Republican. Now, Ross was a four-term incumbent until Hurtado beat him two years ago, and he beat him by 477 votes. So this is just not much. This is a race in Alamance County that, for my money, is probably one of the best bellwethers as we think about supermajority. If Republicans win this district, they're in pretty good shape for a supermajority. If Democrats win this district, the math is getting harder quickly for Republicans to get that veto-proof margin. One other note on this Alamance County race between Hurtado and Ross, we are expecting to see a million dollars on both sides. Both major party candidates spend a million dollars. And this is in a House race. Uh, I don't believe that's ever happened before where both parties have spent a million dollars on major party candidates in a House race. And you said this in our last podcast. These are for jobs that pay how much in the legislature? Just less than $14,000 a year. It's not about the person. Right. Right. Republicans want this seat. They want a supermajority. They want to be able to tell the governor to scram on issues of education, of abortion, emergency powers. You can go down the list, but but that's what's at the heart of this. Okay. Now, which other Democrats do we know about that are sort of in the same category playing defense? Yeah, let me try to tick through some quickly. I realize that that I can get on the ramble train pretty uh, pretty quickly here. Uh, Howard Hunter, four-term Democratic incumbent. He serves Pasquotank, Gates, and Hertford. He's facing Republican Bill Ward. Brian Farkas uh, represents Pitt County, Greenville, trying to stave off Republican Timothy Reeder. There's Linda Cooper Suggs from Wilson County. Uh, Wilson has been close in a number of election cycles recently. Uh, her Republican opponent is Ken Fontenot. There's also uh, Terry Garrison, who serves Vance, Granville, and parts of Warren. So think north and a bit east to Wake County. He's opposed by Frank Sassamon. Let's move to eastern Wake County, where the incumbent Democrat Terrence Everett faces Republican Fred Von Cannon and Libertarian Joseph Serio. And, you know, we tend to do this, I think rightfully so. Look at these suburban, exurban constituencies as something of a bellwether, something of an indicator as to how the independents are breaking. That's appropriate here because uh, the edges of Wake, the periphery, Still fairly squishy, purplish, not deep blue. Uh, and Republicans are optimistic about picking off Everett here. Remember, two years ago, uh, they were able to do that in Southern Wake. So trying to uh, win back uh, a Republican seat on the eastern edge of Wake, where they have had representation in recent years. I'll mention one more for you, um, which is Garland Pierce. He's a nine-term member serving Hoke and Scotland counties. This is southeastern North Carolina along the South Carolina border. 
from everybody I've talked to, he's in he's in a, a, a more desirable position. Should be pretty good. But if it if it's a big night for Republicans, Melissa Swarbrick is uh, is you know in a position to uh, to to end his long tenure in the House. So you mentioned a good night for Republicans, good night for Democrats. That we don't know that we don't know which way that's going to swing. And 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 let's say it might be a you know we talked about if it's a good night for Republicans. These are some of the races they can capture. Not all Republicans are safe. Some Republican incumbents don't have an easy path to re-election. Where are those districts? So we're going to stick with this suburban, exurban uh, slice or thread at various points in the state. I'll start with John Bradford. He's a Republican from Mecklenburg County. He's getting another challenge from Christy Clark. These two squared off in the general election two years ago. He defeated her. She was the incumbent at the time. Uh, He defeated her by about 2,000 votes. Ted Davis is a Republican from New Hanover, Wilmington, of course. He's in his sixth term. He's up against Amy Deloach. And this is a district that, again, because of redistricting and again, because of, you know, just kind of the solidifying uh, nature of urban counties turning blue, it's seen as very competitive. Both districts are ones that Republicans are uh, spending a considerable amount of money in. We're talking six figures as they try to defend those two. One more, just to circle back to the top in Cumberland County that I'll throw your way, is Diane Wheatley of Cumberland. She is a Republican incumbent, and I guess I would almost liken her to Garland Pierce. This is the bellwether of if Wheatley goes down on election night, it signals that it might have been a pretty good night for Democrats. She's in, she's sitting pretty comfortably right now a month out or so. Okay, and with the varying levels of matriculation coupled with redistricting, there are some open seats that are also in play. Let's get to that category. Tell us about the open seats. So listeners might remember the name Larry Pittman. Larry Pittman is one of the most conservative lawmakers in the North Carolina General Assembly. He is retiring, and he serves Cabarrus County. Cabarrus is adjacent to Mecklenburg. It is, as I mentioned earlier, one of the fastest growing counties in the state. So this is an open seat where a lot of money is being spent on both sides. Both parties and the people I've talked to have a a relative amount of confidence. The Democrat is Diamond Staten Williams. The Republican is Brian Echevarria. And uh, that is really one of the most suburban districts uh, in in the state at this point. So that is one to watch outside of our listening area, but still important, still a voting member of the, the North Carolina House. Uh, then in Robeson County, so Robeson, right along the South Carolina border, uh, you've got incumbent Charles Graham, who's not running again. He's running for Congress. So it's Democrat Charles Townsend and Republican Jared Lowry. Uh, and this is, you know, every district is notable for, for several reasons. But this is a district uh, that is home to the Lumbee Nation. The outgoing incumbent Graham is a member of the Lumbee Nation. And the Republican Jared Lowry is uh, a member uh, of, of the Lumbee Nation. So uh, that is something that, that could quite possibly factor in prominently uh, there as well. You talked about some big numbers already today, and you talked about some big numbers last week when we talked about the state Senate. Seven figures in some of those state Senate races are being spent, contests, as we mentioned, for part-time positions. So as a reminder, the stakes are high with a supermajority hanging in the ballots. Tell us a little bit more about the money generally on the House side. So in the last couple of weeks, I've had a number of conversations with Republicans and Democrats uh, about the House battleground. And one of my takeaways 
And one of the consistent narratives that I have heard from from people who don't necessarily get along is that Republicans have a lot more money right now. Um, they have raised more money, and Democrats don't feel like they have a you know a paltry piggy bank, but they don't have as much money, and there is not as much so-called dark money, money that is funneling through 501c4s, the independent expenditures. Uh, there is more of that on the conservative side than there is on the progressive side. One you know, perhaps interesting data point to to share is that Stephen Wiley, House Republican caucus director, told me last week that uh, they were comfortably north of 8 million and approaching 10 million for this election cycle. That's the most they've ever raised in an election cycle. These are big numbers. They don't necessarily mean a lot to us. But when we think about still having cash on hand, still having millions of dollars available just weeks before early voting, what we're what I expect to see are, you know, just this this flood of digital ads and mailers continue. Juxtaposed to the Senate, which we talked about last week, the House, the ads have they've just been, I don't know, a little more questionable, uh, not not maybe uh, as, as clearly above the belt. We've had allegations of photoshopping. I mean, we, we clearly have had photoshopping. I mentioned that Hurtado Ross race in Alamance County. Um so I think, unfortunately, but the reality of it is we're going to see some some nasty ads here in the next few weeks, and it will be interesting how quickly we in the news media respond to them and debunk them. If there are legal challenges, as you and I you know, sit and record this on Monday, I'm going to jump back to the Senate real quick. Michael Lee, who is a Senate candidate from New Hanover County, is seeking a preliminary injunction in his race to force his Democratic candidate to take an ad down because he says it's going to hurt his law practice. So just like how how ridiculous and foolish, and maybe going back to the analogy, how much like a, a, a cruise ship are we going to get here in the next couple of weeks? And to your point, and I think there's a great point, and I want to underscore this again. You mentioned this last week. How much does it matter? Like you, you can drop you can drop millions of dollars and you can just you can hound a prospective voter and you can hit them over the head again and again and again and again. And I think some people are persuadable and some of this is malleable. However, anybody who's going to vote or the vast majority of people who are going to vote, are they really malleable? Do they really need to be hit over the head? Don't they know? And I'm just sticking with Alamance County here, whether or not Ricky Hurtado is their guy or whether Stephen Ross is their guy. And, you know, I guess this is one of those worthless hypotheticals that you can throw up and we'll never really know. But I remain unconvinced that all of the ads, and particularly some of the the, the nasty, dirty, factually inaccurate, what is this about ad, um, are, are going to gonna win the day, so to speak. Yeah, I'm like you. I don't watch a lot of local TV, but I did during Hurricane Ian, right? And what was interesting to me about seeing all these political ads, some of them for the first time, was you would come up with one ad that would say candidate A is a criminal. Candidate A is going to sell you down the river. Candidate A is the worst. Then the next ad right after that comes up from candidate A, candidate A is a family man. Candidate A is going to be this and this and this. And you don't have to be a member of PolitiFact. You just have to be a sentient human to go, well, neither of these is probably true, 100% true. So like how is this impact going to be with people who don't really even think about who's my state house member, who's my state senator? You know, suddenly they're having to make these choices 
a lot of that decision's already been made. They're going to walk in and say D or R, and it's just that small group of people that are being targeted with millions and millions of dollars that are going to go, and probably have thought about it the least amount, that are ones that are going to go, eh, that person. Is, and that's, that's what's going to decide the supermajority. So I agree with you. That said, I do want to point out something that Stephen Wiley, the Republican operative who I mentioned earlier, mentioned to me in a conversation last week. And he said that there are times when legislative candidates can outpace candidates who are higher up on the ballot. In other words, a statehouse candidate receives more votes on occasion within the district that he or she is running than the president receives in that same district. Now, this happened a a small handful of times in districts in 2016 and in 2020. And that kind of down-ballot support could be a result due to, or I suppose in spite of, all the many ads and mailers. There can, on occasion, I think it's the exception to the rule, be this inverse where some of these legislative candidates might get more votes than, you know, in this year, say, um, Ted Budd or Sherry Beasley. An entire episode about swing legislative districts. If you already tuned into last week's episode, that makes two for you. And if you haven't yet heard that episode, go catch up on the battleground districts in the state Senate. We're entering a pledge drive this week at WUNC, your hopefully favorite public radio station. And I would be remiss if I did not offer a thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for supporting. Thank you for being here and knowing the importance of what a strong fourth estate means to our democracy. I've said it before, publicly and privately, believe it or not, I've made a similar boat comment. Our listeners are what keep this ship, WUNC, the boat, strong, well-stocked, positioned to continue to provide you with news and information well into the future. So again, sincerely, thank you. thing because we have something called a pledge drive coming up. So can you say 1-800-1-800-962-962-9862. Please support WUNC. Please support WUNC. Thanks. Thanks. Thanks.